0: So we were discussing, last time, the the innate love that every Jew has for Hashem and how even though the love that is created through contemplating on the greatness of Hashem, that experience ceases after a prayer, but the innate love that is awakened A sense of that remains even after prayer. So after prayer, both there is the clarity of the mind that we spoke about several weeks ago. and Also, um, there remains the impression of that innate love that every Jew has inherently. And then we're going to go on to say how these two things serve to keep the Bainani free of sin after the prayer. Um, And then there's one extra paragraph at, at the end of the chapter, which... Is like a whole fun thing in and of itself. Okay. So we're going to start from the beginning of the paragraph, however. However, the impression of prayer on the intellect and the hidden innate love and fear of Hashem in the right part of the heart enable one to prevail and to triumph over his evil of passionate craving, depriving it of gaining, from gaining supremacy and dominion over the city. The city's a reference to the body. And from carrying out this desire from the potential into actual by clothing itself in the bodily organs. So the first thing is, is that this sense of uh, this impression of the in- on the intellect and the innate love from the prayer means that the person will not act on their desires. And we discussed that at great length previously, so I'm not going to rehash that all here. Good? Okay. Moreover, even in the mind alone, insofar as sinful thoughts are concerned, evil has no power to compel the mind's volition to entertain willingly, God forbid, any wicked thought arising of its own accord from the heart to the brain as discussed above. But no sooner does it reach there than he thrusts it out with both hands and avert his mind from it to the instant he reminds himself that it is an evil thought refusing to accept it willingly, even to let his thoughts play on it willingly. And how much more so to entertain any idea of putting it into effect, God forbid, or even into words. For he who willfully indulges in such thoughts is deemed wicked at such time, whereas the bainini, the intermediate person, is never wicked for a single moment. This is also something we discussed at length, right? The idea of um, that the control the Bainini has extends over to the thoughts. We discussed being aware of desire versus fantasizing about desire versus planning out how to act on the desire. The one thing that I want to talk about here is this expression, he thrusts it out with both hands. I would like to spend some time talking about that. The, this expression, um, first off, just a general thing something you should know about rabbinic literature is that the later rabbinic literature, what I mean to say is all the stuff that is post-Talmud is very much woven with um, phrases taken from the Tanakh, the scripture, and from the Talmudic sages. So they will use a, 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 a phrase that has a very lot of rich history to it. Um, that's very often just stylistic, that's how it's, how it's written, um, but the Alter when he would choose phrases that, were, that had this long tradition, he did it very selectively. He did it because the tradition of the meaning of that phrase was meant to convey some of the idea that he said, okay? So the fact that he uses this expression, he thrusts it out with both hands, is not just a figure of speech, but he chose that expression because of what that means in the Rabbinic tradition. So to understand that, I need to tell you a story. There was a man, um, should we give you the controversial version or the uncontroversial version? Okay. There was a man named Rabbi Shua ben Prachia. Shua ben Prachia was the leader of the Jewish people um, during the Hasmonean era, during the times of the descendants of the Maccabees. Um, And he had a disciple Um, whose name was Yeshu HaNaitzri, known in English as Jesus of Nazareth. So, there is some debate as to whether this is the same Jesus of Nazareth that Christians revere and blah, 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 um, but that's the way it says in the uncensored version of the Talmud. His disciples' name was Yeshu HaNaitzri, Jesus of Nazareth. Neitzri means he comes from Nazareth is a, it's a still city in Israel you can go there now there was a lot of politics at this time um, it, it, between the Hasmoneans and, 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 and the, the political leadership in the land of Israel and the religious leadership and Shuvah and um, had to make a short um, escape for a period of time out of Israel in order to avoid some Dangerous political situations, and he traveled with his disciple. And they stopped at an inn. What
1: was happening in Israel that
0: There was a lot of crazy politics. Um, yeah, and you guys have a Jewish history class? The end of the Second Temple time was, was crazy. It was really crazy. Um, it's like a really bad soap opera, except everybody in it is Jewish, plus Romans, but mostly Jews, and a very bad soap opera. And a lot of killing. Anyway, so th- he's traveling and they stay in an inn. And in the inn, there was an innkeeper and the innkeeper was a woman. And Rabbi Prachya um, commented on how beautiful the innkeeper was. Now, the word Yafa, beautiful in Hebrew, carries a variety of connotations. It can mean anything from worth... Like um, so, when the Talmudic sages wanted to you know how much something's worth, they, they, they would say, hey, Yafeh, or "This thing is yafeh, something, something. So it meant worth, like value. It could also mean praiseworthy. It could also mean aesthetic beauty in the physical sense, right? It can mean a lot of different things. And he is referring to her conduct. She was a very kind, generous. She, she, she her, her mides were, uh, you know, the, worthy of praise. His disciple disagreed and said that her eyes were a little bit off-shapen, so she wasn't as pretty as. Uh, you know. And and was like, "What are you doing? That's not appropriate behavior for anybody, much less one of the disciples of the leaders of the Jewish people." And so he said, "Out!" and cast his disciple out. So his disciple came back and apologized, and Rebbe and Prophet said, "Out!" and ignored him. He didn't say out; he just refused to accept any of his overtures of repentance, and this proceeded for a long time, and eventually Rabbi felt that his disciple had had a sufficient lesson, and next time he came to apologize, Rabbi would accept his apology and invite him back into the circle of disciples. Rabbi, the disciple, on the other hand, decided he's had enough, he's asking one more time, if he's not accepted, then he's done. So he comes to Rabbi Prakhi, and Rabbi is in the middle of reciting the Shema. Which is a technical problem because you cannot respond to people reciting the Shema. So he made a motion to indicate, "Please wait till I finish the Shema." The disciple understood this as another rejection. At which point, the expression of Talmud is: He took a brick, stood it on its, uh, stood it up, and worshipped it, which is an expression for idol worship. The idea is that an idol is nothing other than a brick. And um, so, this disciple decided to totally reject Judaism at this point and start some sort of idolatry. That's the story. It's not even like elegant idolatry. It's
1: like a brick. Fine.
0: Well, because the Talmud doesn't want the idolatry to seem elegant, so, so this is a very like... like very well, I don't know if it was actually a brick. Now, to be fair, while we're on the topic, the uncensored version of the Talmud does mention how um, a certain Yeshua Hanei was executed also just so we can flesh out the story and go back to the time. You know? So is this disciple supposed to be the
1: nephew, Yeshu?
0: No, yeah, that, that is, yeah, that, that's the disciple. That's, that's yeah, who yeah, it yeah, 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 that's who it was. Wow. Yeshu, Jesus of Nazareth. Anyway, so in the end, the, the Talmud has a discussion about the proper procedure for executing people in the Jewish court. And as is common in Talmudic texts, they use case studies of what actually happened. So they, they bring a, 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 a text which describes the execution procedure f- that was applied to Yeshu HaNaitzu, that he was tried in the basin for two crimes. One was sorcery, and the other was for convincing other Jews to worship idols. And he was sentenced to death, but because he had connections with the Roman government, the, uh, the, the basin added some extra leniencies in the procedure that are not normally appropriate. And in the end, he was put to death by stoning. And had his corpse hung up, as is the halacha for one who's stoned. So in the Talmudic tradition, whoever this person was, was not crucified, but he was stoned to death by the Sanhedrin, um, by, the s- Jewish. by the Jewish people, yes. So the
1: Jews actually did kill Jesus. Well, don't go, around,
0: <laughs> don't go around telling everybody that, because that's gotten a lot of Jews killed. But the way the story is recorded in the Talmud is that there was a man named Yeshua Naitzui, who was a disciple of Yeshua Mpach, which means he lived, I don't know, Good, close to a hundred years li- earlier than they say he lived and he was put to death not by the Romans but by the Sanhedrin um, and the Sanhedrin actually had to be a little bit more lenient with him in the way that the proceedings of the court went because of his connections with the political establishment at the time. Um, now, whether that is in fact the same person or a different person whether that person they say exists, ever really existed is a question for historians but that is the story in the uncensored version of the Talmud. If you get a censored version some of that stuff's not in there. Some of it's there not by name and some of it's not there at all. How, anyway. How
1: much later was he put to death after, after he story?
0: Doesn't say. Doesn't say. The stories are found in two different places. One is in discussion um, about something else, about education, and one is in discussion about putting people to that. Now, afterwards, Rabbi Prachya came up, said the following teaching that one, uh, or, or sorry, the sages said that one should never conduct himself like a Shroom Prachya, that you should always conduct yourself in a manner where one hand pushes away but one hand draws near and the right hand should draw the person near the left hand should push the person away the right hand being the stronger hand so he should draw the person close with love while at the same time pushing them away rebuking them for they've been wrong whereas as opposed to look at what Reb and Prachiyah did he pushed away his disciple with both hands so there's this expression of one hand versus two hands from this context and, and the, the Talmud discusses other scenarios and other things where the one hand hand, two-hand approach, where we should be taking the one-hand approach. So, the alphabet using this expression, pushing with both hands, is as opposed to pushing away with just one hand. And if you're pushing with one hand, the other hand is supposed to be drawing close. Now, so that means what the alphabet wants us to realize is that pushing, is that, is that the way of the Bainini deals with um, inappropriate thoughts is the two-handed approach pushing with two hands, as opposed to what would be the one-handed approach, pushing with one hand, drawing close with the other hand. Now, you have to ask two questions. One, what is the other approach? And two, why would the Alter have to be clear that we don't use that other approach? In other words, if the other approach is so obviously wrong, then the altar would not need to emphasize you shouldn't do, take that approach. Okay. So the idea is that when you think about something, um that is wrong, it's inappropriate, it's not conducive to one's service of God. And you just realize that that's wrong. It is very natural to think about the fact that that thought was a wrong thought and you shouldn't think it. So what you're thinking is how that thought is an inappropriate thought. That would be pushing it away with one hand. Because on one hand you're rejecting the thought, but on the other hand your mind is still thinking about the thought. So you're drawing it close with one hand but pushing it away with another. So thinking about how you shouldn't be thinking something or why you shouldn't be thinking or what's wrong with thinking it or anything about the inappropriate thought, even if it's in a way of actively rejecting that, is only re- re- repelling it with one hand. It's simultaneously with the other hand drawing it close. Why is that
1: drawing it close?
0: To because you're still thinking about it. Because
1: you're thinking how terrible that thought is?
0: Yes, you're still engaged with it. To push something away with two hands, which mean, would mean that you are not thinking about it at all. Ah, herein lies the question. Because while it is simple for a benini to not do something, you just don't do it, right? Not doing is very simple, right? Men are experts at not doing things. You know that, right? Okay. Um, Not speaking, less simple, but actually it's very simple. What do you have to do to not speak? Yeah, it's not so hard. How do you not think? That's right, you cannot not think, you have to replace thoughts with other thoughts. There is no such thing as not thinking. Now, it is possible that you're not aware of what you're thinking, you know, it's possible to be engaged in thought without having a conscious awareness of what you're thinking about, that's possible.
1: Can you give an example?
0: Sometimes people are like sitting on the bus or something and they're watching, you know, they're staring out the window and their thoughts are daydreaming. And if you were to stop them at that moment, say, what were you thinking about? They're like, uh, I, I don't know. They were like so lost in thought, they don't have that reflexive consciousness to, to beep. They're not observing their thoughts. So there's, there's, there's thinking and there's observing thinking. Okay? Um, you can just see this also with, 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 with other kinds of things, like um, you just put your pen down, right? Now, this is not going to happen because I'm pointing it out to you. But if I hadn't pointed it out to you, when you picked up your pen again to write, would you have had to consciously think, oh, my, I left my pen right here? Or you just picked it up? Picked it up. Picked it up. So were you aware that your pen is there or were you not aware that your pen is there? I
1: was aware.
0: You were aware. But you weren't aware that you were aware until I draw your attention to it your mind would have been on something else right so there's this kind of two layers of our minds right there's the thinking there's the doing there's the speaking there's the seeing which are right we all exp- and then there's the fact that you're kind of observing yourself doing that okay? like right it's called metacognition, right um so you're always thinking you're not always aware of your thoughts But that's besides, but the thing is, you can't stop thinking. So now, in our case, the person is thinking something. They're aware that that thought is incongruent with their sense of who they are as a servant of Hashem, as a Jew, right? As a result of the prayer, the impressions made on their intellect and on the innate love that they feel towards Hashem. They can't stop thinking that thought by deciding to stop thinking the thought. It doesn't work. So they could shift and think about how that thought is wrong and inappropriate, which is more... Um, intuitive thing that people do. But now you're still dwelling on the thought. The appropriate thing to do is to move your thoughts to something else entirely. Now, that means an important skill in being a Benini is the ability to drop a thought and move to another thought. Now, to be fair, this is not actually unique to a Benini. Um, This is part of being a you know, a a, a mature, healthy human being. The ability to drop one train of thought and move to another train of thought. But in order to do that, the other train of thought has to be something that you are going to actually think. Now, this creates a problem. What if a person doesn't have other thoughts? Um, When you walk down the street, What do you think about? Well, most people think about one of two things. Either there's stuff that occurs to them because they're like, have something emotional connection to it, right? There's something going on in their life, whatever, so they're thinking about that. Or, if that's not the case, then what's going on around them is just kind of beaming into like, oh, there's a bank and there's a tree. Yeah. Right? Um, part of being a Benini, and frankly, part of being a, 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 a healthy human being is Treating thought as a volitional act And as a valuable resource So You have all of this ability to think You should decide what you want to be thinking about You should have what to think about okay. there's why, This is why there's a tradition Of knowing sections of Torah by heart Either word for word or conceptually um, But a person should think of thought The way they think of hopefully Hopefully, money. Who should dictate how you spend your money? Hopefully, you. I mean, religiously, I would say think God, but you or advertising agencies. We, 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 what? Hopefully, you. Hopefully, you. Right. Okay. And you realize that spending money is a decision because if you lose the mo- if you spend the money on this, you won't have it for that, right? So, a person has to kind of train themselves to us that the same thing is true with thought. While thoughts can occur to us unwillingly, but the continuing thinking is really up to us, and so we, can, we should have what thoughts we want to be thinking about. Okay. And so there is an element here where, just like if I really want to play the piano, if I have no training in playing the piano, it's going to be very hard for me to just sit down and play. If I have no practice in diverting my thought to some other thought, it's going to be very hard to do that even though I have this impression. In other words, the natural tendency is to get wrapped up in how this thought is the wrong thing to do. So in other words, the prayer and the impression that that leaves on the person's intellect and emotion is enough to get them to not willingly entertain that thought. But you still need the practice and the skill of diverting thought with two hands rather than getting caught up in how the thought is wrong and thinking negatively about the thought. That's more of a technical skill. It's a mental exercise that a person needs to practice. Um, and in general, it's a good thing to do. You'd be surprised how much calmer you'll be if you have some sort of like, autonomy of your own thought. Okay. Um, which leads to just another little side point that I think is important. What if a person cannot do this? A person has a thought, and they can't stop thinking the thought. What then is the solution in order to be abandoned? Is a the the thought. Study. What? The study. They have Stop. a thought. They realize it's wrong. They try to divert their mind and they can't. Stop Stop Stop. What? Stop engaging thought in speech, speech, right? Okay. Go pray. What? Go
1: pray.
0: Go pray. Okay. So, so what. There's, there's, we're gonna group the answers into two categories. There's one kind of answer, which is that sometimes you need to support the shift thought through external things, such as speak, right? Sometimes it's hard to shift thoughts, so start saying things. Find someone to talk to if you can. Maybe you know something by heart. Read, right? Add some stimulation, that, that can help. Um, but if that doesn't work, then you need a mental health professional and not a rabbi in other words that a human being who's functioning within some range of normal should be able to given that their own sense of, the, of this thing is this is not what I want to be thinking about okay so we're not we're talking I don't want to think this right given my, my the way my mind has perceives reality from my, the way based on my own values desires this is not what I want to be thinking about even though I may be drawn to it for some reason. And if I can't necessarily entirely divert my thoughts just by thinking something else, but with the the support of some kind of stimulation, such as, again, maybe talking to someone about some other topic, listening to something, reading something, getting engaged in something else. I should be able to divert my thoughts entirely from the thing that I do not want to be thinking about. If that is not happening, then, there's something else of which rabbis don't have any training in but other people may have some training and then you should go seek out their advice. Yeah.
1: So if something's like a reoccurring thought and you, let's say you can change your thought patterns but it's so reoccurring that it's almost like what you were describing the other day like you have to consciously always be fighting up against
0: it then that's also probably something deeper, no? It depends what kind of thing it is. The altar but later on discusses that with the benini Um, issues having to do with um, um, religious beliefs, so say doubts about the legitimacy of Torah, mitzvahs, the importance of God, the reality of word and punishment, thoughts of those nature, or thoughts that are of a sexual nature, those kinds of thoughts that a person will never be free of them recurring. That's not indicative of a problem. I'll have to address that in chapter 27 of Tanya. But if you have other thoughts, let's say, and we're going to get to this like soon. But let's say thoughts of vengeance, like, yeah, like at some point you should be able to work on yourself to the point that like that is not a reoccurring thing all the time. And if that's not happening, then a person might need, need some. So I want to. I want to be. In other words, there's 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 a difference between. In other words there's a difference between reoccurring thoughts in the sense that they're constantly occurring, like you say, you're constantly battling them, and things that show up once in a while in, in, circum, in a circumstance that would make sense, So in other words, even, so, uh, a, a bainani would not be a person who has reoccurring thoughts of, be- of vengeance. Um, and the very simple reason for that is, because a person who has reoccurring thoughts of vengeance is clearly having an issue regulating himself on a basic human level. And such a person is not going to be successful in becoming a Baini without also dealing with that. Okay. Whereas a Baini could have reoccurring doubts about the truth of Torah and mitzvot, um, and, and, and Because that has to do with the underlying nature of Klippah. However, a he definitely could have thoughts of vengeance occur to them when someone has harmed them and they're right, someone is someone just did something to you and now you're very upset and thoughts of vengeance occur, right? That could happen. But that's not a that's not that's not like a a, a reoccurring. That's in 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 context would make a certain amount of sense. Okay? So you kind of have to differentiate that. But if a person is finding that they are having a very difficult time controlling their thoughts, and it will probably bleed over into things which are not particularly of a religious nature as well. In other words, having a hard time staying focused at tasks that are purely of a mundane nature because they're being plagued by whatever issues there are. That's not really something that the Alter Rebbe addresses and Tanya or Hasidus in general addresses. it almost takes for granted a certain basic level of functioning. The, the, the fifth Chabad Rebbe in his guide for prayer, his solution for being distracted during prayer or before, said, so before you pray, you should remove all extraneous thoughts. And he says, when a person says that it's hard, they should just realize how important prayer is, and that praying is more important than their physical health. And for their physical health, they can remove extraneous thoughts. And the proof being is that even if a person has a lot of issues going on during the day, they can go to sleep at night. Now, if a person has a lot of things that are bothering them during the day, can they put those things out of their mind in order to fall asleep? Well, let's think about this. If they can't, what label would we give that person? It's already not healthy. Exactly. So, therefore, a healthy person is capable of such a thing, right? Okay. In other words, in other words th- there's a certain level of functioning that is what should be expected of a healthy person. A person may not be healthy, and if they're not healthy, so then you have to figure out how to either treat that or ideally cure that. And so it's important to realize that the out that, that we're dealing with things like this, if a person is dealing with like like reoccurring negative thoughts, and they're using the techniques in the tanya and it's not working, right? There's probably something else going on here that has to do with basic human functioning and is not really an issue of religion and, and the and the religious perspective and praying. Okay, um, I feel very strongly about this that while it, there is definitely crossover between ideas in chassidus and ideas in mental health, and there's definitely one can supplement the other, and, um, but it is also the case that they are not synonymous. If you, if you go through the Rebbe's letters on these topics, you will find that the Rebbe gives different advice to different people for seemingly similar things. And part of the reason is because symptoms might have different underlying causes. For example, many people would write to the Rebbe feeling that they are sad, they're miserable, and the Rebbe would recommend some kind of contemplation about service of God, their place in the world, the fact they have whatever, stuff like that. There are also things where, one of my favorite is a, a teenage girl wrote to the Rebbe that she was feeling very down and sad and depressed, and whatever, and the Rebbe wrote to her four points. One, she should know that she's not the only person with this problem, and other people have it and have gotten better. Two, she should say her the tilum corresponding to her age every day. Three, she should give 18 cents the Tzedakah every day. And four, she should go to her family doctor and get a referral to a specialist. Four
1: should be number one. What? Number
0: one. No. The, the, no. I, I, I think it's put in the specific order for a reason. First thing is that the idea of getting better presupposes that you believe them in getting better. And then the first thing is that ultimately everything comes from a chef. But the mechanism is going to be this way. So I think they have a, was not putting the order of priority, of the order outlook. I see. But um, there was a letter where someone wrote, that, where they wrote to someone that they don't eat regularly and sleep regularly and don't have a stable job. So like, you know, there's a, you know, your psyche breaks down when you don't have sufficient routine. Okay. So it's important to realize that when we're talking about things like this, we are taking for granted. An ability, like just when we talk about the prayer, we're talking, we're taking for granted the ability to contemplate in that deep way. Right here, we're taking granted a level of mental awareness and regulation, which is not superhuman, but it's something that people struggle with. And to be very frank, it's something in our society we don't really train people to do. It's something that people, we're not. Uh, just to give you, just to give you an example. Um, Studying for a test, okay? Have you ever studied for a test? Okay. What is the most effective? I'm not talking about, I'm talking about a test where you actually need to know stuff, right? Not like, you have a test and like, tell us your opinion on like something. Like You actually need to know stuff. You need to know a large amount of information, clearly, being able to put it in writing. How do you study for a test where you really have? How do you do that? Like, review. Well, what do you do in your are Okay, I'm sitting down. I'm going to review. What do read, I do?
1: Start by reading it and taking it in. Depends on
0: what it is, by the way. All right. I know. I know. So I want you to give me general characteristics of review rather than topic-specific characteristics of review. You become very
1: familiar with the information. What? You go over it. You try to understand it.
0: Mm-hmm. And then what?
1: You give flashcards. like you go over it again. Go over it again. information.
0: And then what do you do? You go over again,
1: yeah.
0: and then what do you do? You
1: Until you again. really know it, and, so and you again.
0: go over again. At what point is you your mind like? I would rather do something else.
1: Oh, even in the beginning. beginning. What? that <laughs> even in the beginning? No.
0: no so, but when you're content, you're saying. Yeah. So this this thing is like your you is that review. This is the annoying thing about review. <laughs> review really works at the level, somewhere past the point where your mind is is. A what? Like,
1: is it bored by it? It
0: gets bored by it, and, and, right, and then you keep going over it, and over it, and over it, and over it. Yeah, you have to figure out how to do that effectively, right? And that requires a lot of mental discipline, okay? It's not superhuman. It's really not superhuman. But um, if you try reviewing things, what you'll notice is that, like, just like, say, a physical thing, if you start trying to do a physical activity that you've not done before, you're going to be bad at it, okay? You burn out quickly, you do it wrong, and you get better at it. So, traditionally, how did how was how was Jew, how did Jewish education go for you know the 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 those people who were going to actually learn Torah? Well, there was a lot of memorization, a lot of review, okay, um, where you were just like you, you go over something and over something and over something and over something, and so the idea of there was there was there was a whole kind of culture around the idea that you should be training your mind to be able to focus on one thing, and if your mind moves away, move back to it, okay? Um, We live in a society which is very much about stimulating our minds, okay? Um, That, right, that instead of thought being a kind of self-directed activity, we think of, we, we tend to treat the mind much more like it's a screen and have everything get projected onto it, right? So... That what that means is that this idea, if a person wants to really implement this, they're going to have to practice. They're going to have to exercise. Um, but it's not superhuman. It's not something that you have to be like a tzaddik for. It's not something you have to be exceptional for. It just, to, you know, um, there are many things that human beings can do, but they require them to put the effort into cultivating that particular thing. Um, If you were to take, like, a physical example, most human beings, if they put in the effort, um, they could run pretty fast.
1: We're training for a
0: bike. Right. It's just a matter of doing it, right? I'm clearly not doing it, right? But you could say, like, if you do it.
1: We were about to
0: say, so are you, Rabbi. No, I'm not. Okay. Now, what I want to focus on is on the idea of technique. But as we all know, that just working on a technique and getting better at something doesn't work if a person doesn't see the value in actually doing it, right? So going back to this example about reviewing for tests, if you see, if you don't really see the value in knowing the information, it makes it very hard to review. For instance, if you only see the value in reviewing the test to get a good grade, what you start doing is self-censoring. What do I need to know for the test? But then the information is very fragmented, okay? Um, and, and that's a problem because just think about it like it, I mean you use this as an example because it's, it's important also information about learning but don't will carry it back over to Tanya um, you can look stuff up right we can't look stuff up and because we can look stuff up we don't feel that it's so important that we that we actually remember things mm-hmm. okay now on some level, that's not the bad thing at all, right? Like, like what's the point of remembering a phone number if you could look it up? Like, it really doesn't make a difference if, if the information is there. Um, but if you're trying to actually understand things in a deep way, what your your ability to think clearly and deeply about something is hindered by the fact you have to look up pieces of information. Okay? So let's say, for instance, you're trying to really understand a particular section of the Chumash. If you don't have in your mind an awareness of the whole Chumash, then you're working with partial context. It doesn't mean you're consciously thinking about every fact, it means your unconscious mind is accessing all of that and so it's rising to the conscious surface as only plausible given the totality of the whole story of the Chumash. Um, and you can see this sometimes where like, like, like people who like, you know, they're new to things, they, they don't even know what happens next week Parsha, so they'll say something in a, in a Parsha class. You're like, well, I mean, if you knew the next part of the Chumash, you wouldn't have said that. But that's true about everything. And so the more a person values deep learning, the more, if, the, if they're rational, that should correlate in a valuing of kind of rote memorization of important information. Um, And conversely, if you devalue the rote memorization of all the important information, what does that do to your level? What does that do to your ability to learn deeply? It goes away. So there's this sense that if I really wanna understand deeply, that should, I should uh, achieve kind of clarity in my mind that it's really important to engage in rote memorization and review and remembering things. Um, And many of the great Torah scholars, um, they did a lot of review, a lot, a lot, a lot of review. They didn't just born one day and boom, know the entire Talmud That's not how that happens usually So now, carrying this over
1: You're saying, remember The memorization is of the things that you learned Yes Or not, not just like other facts You're saying specifically what you learned
0: is what you should be No, yeah, but if you want to be able to understand something deeply You need to memorize it Like, I'll just give you an example You're learning a, you're learning a Hasidic discourse, right? If it's not clearly laid out in your mind what's happened up until now, then you, you lose the plot, right? And, and so the, the way to think about it is like breadth and depth go together, and the, but the breadth is only useful if it's actually retained, and retaining means reviewing, and reviewing means you're really taking that conscious, I'm gonna think about this even though it's boring because I already understand, I, I understand it, but I'm gonna go over it again and again and again. Now, the exact technique you use will vary depending on the kind of information it is, right? Flashcards just thinking it through, saying it out loud, whatever. There's different techniques. So in a similar kind of way, if a person, it's really important for a person to be connected to Hashem, that correlates to not letting your mind get hijacked by things that are not consistent with that. Well, then that that has to provide the motivation then to develop the skill to regulate your thoughts. Because you can't work on the skill unless you have a motivation for it, right? Those of you who are working to... Um, be able to run a five-kilometer race, have to have something that makes you feel that that's a worthwhile endeavor. Otherwise, you won't do it. Does that make sense? So there's two elements here. What the Tanya is speaking about is the motivation for the regulation of thought and telling you which technique to use. Don't think about how bad the thought was, just think about something else. But if you don't have that skill in place, the is not teaching you how to do that. He's just taking for granted that people know how to do that. And if you don't know how to do that, learn how to do that. And you find that you really, really, truly can't, even with some sort of external assistance, then, you know, you might want to look into some sort of more professional help. Maybe you have an anxiety disorder, maybe something at which point, which is not, again, the end of the world. It's just sometimes you, 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 you know, don't, don't try to put a nail in with a screwdriver. It's not an effective technique, right? Each, each problem should be addressed appropriately. Good? Okay. So we're done. We finished chapter 12. Aren't you excited? Okay.
1: We've
0: done 10, 11, and 12. Oh, 10, yeah. 11. Except there's one more paragraph. <laughs> what? Yes. <laughs> when the Alte first wrote the Tanya, this last paragraph was not in the Tanya. This was in version 2.0. Version 1.0 did not have this last Is paragraph. Addition? It's an addition. In the original version of the Tanya, everything that mentions relationships with other people was absent from the Tanya. Okay. The Alter didn't tell us, but I heard an explanation, which I will share with you, um, that the Alter Rebbe's, it's, the, the tradition is that the Alter Rebbe's attitude was that since the core of the Hasidic lifestyle is obviously Yisrael and getting along with other Jews, that the Alter Rebbe, so to speak, took that for granted, and the Tanya was meant to be a guide to how to how to, have a proper relationship with Hashem Um, and then the Alter Rebbe realized that maybe that that is not in fact the way that all the Hasidim are approaching things so the end of chapter 12 which deals with relationships with other people as well as the famous uh, chapter 32 um, also chapter uh, 30 all those were additions to the Tanya in the second version and they all discuss relationships with people as opposed to relationship with God
1: so there
0: was a first version printed without this? It wasn't printed. Okay. It wasn't printed. It has since been printed. Um, you can get it. It's called Tanya Madura Kama, which means first edition in Hebrew. But it was, that was the, it was the first manuscript edition. That was not what the printed. The had the second edition printed. The
1: first one was handed out in parts.
0: Yes, it was handed out in parts. It was never printed. And then there was a second edition, and that was the one that was printed. And there are differences, and the most, one of the most obvious differences is that, this, is that this paragraph, the end of chapter 12, chapter 30, chapter 32, which all discuss relationships with other people, were absent. Um, I, I want to spend a little bit of time on this, because there is a way in which relating to God is harder than relating to a person, and there's a way in which relating to God is easier than relating to a person. Um, and in that sense, you've got to see kind of the argument for not including and the argument for then including it. Why is it easier to relate to another person? Well, that should be obvious, because another person is, you can actually experience the other person's presence and their reactions to you, right? If you say nice things to people, they tend to react in a way that is pleasant and you can pick up on that. If you say not nice things to people, right, the opposite. Whereas when we do mitzvahs, it is not the case that we experience the closeness to Hashem, um, or when we sin, it's not the case we experience the distance from Hashem. very often those effects are very roundabout, if we have any sense of them at all. Um, the, as a general rule, people who are not tzaddikim don't have an ongoing experience of feedback in their relationship with Hashem. Um, for many of us, one of the most difficult parts of prayer not prayer when you're in like, desperate needs and you know, you're instinctively calling out to God, but prayer that's done at, as a matter of ritual is to actually feel like you're talking to someone and that they're listening. Um, okay. So in that sense, the sense that there's someone there it, you know, is much clearer with another person. So seemingly it should be more intuitive to have a proper Bainini-like relationship with your fellow Jew than it would be to have a ba'iny like relationship with God because God is so ethereal, abstract, remote, etc. However, it is also the case that it's easier to have a relationship with God than with another person.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Why? God
1: can understand you better? No. Because
0: you feel repercussions. What? You you feel more. What? You don't feel repercussions, generally speaking. You feel.
1: You don't feel the repercussions.
0: That's right. That's right. God is what you make of him.
1: Yeah, that's really true. Is this the last paragraph?
0: Yes. Oh, okay. And because God is what you make of him, you know, it's easy. It's like having a relationship an you know, with an imaginary friend. Now, that's false. It's not really true. But you can slip into that. Okay? Um, you can't do that with other people.
1: a true relationship. Correct. So then it's not easier.
0: That's right. I'm not talking about the actual relationship being easier, but I'm talking about the way we approach the relationship.
1: Easier to have a perceived relationship.
0: That's right. So if you write a whole book about how to be a ba'inani, how to relate to Hashem properly, godly soul and animal soul and desires and indulgences and love of Hashem and fear of Hashem and blah, 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 blah. You do run, and You do run the risk that it all ends up becoming like some sort of like make-believe fantasy game in the person's mind. Right? But the relationship with like their neighbor, their spouse, their children, right? That's, <laughs> when, when that's not working, like, that's, it's not working, right? I mean, don't ever under, underestimate the power of people to delude themselves about anything. But um, there's a wonderful story of the third Chabad Rebbe the on this point. When the Tzemach Tzedek, first of all, as you know, that the Chabad Rebbe's varied tremendously in personality. Some of them were children and some of them were not. The Alt Rebbe was never a child. Um, in other words, he didn't play, he, just, he was a very... He was just a very deep, serious person. And his son, the Mitra, was also not a child. But the third Chabad Rebbe the Tzemach Tzedek was a precocious child. Um, the fourth Chabad Rebbe, their marsh was also a precocious child. The fifth Chabad Rebbe was not. Uh, for the uh, And the, the sixth one was. The Rebbe was not. I think the Rebbe once played one game one time with some other kids. It didn't end well.
1: <laughs>
0: they were playing, I think, with marbles or something. And uh, they said, how can you not play with us? So he said, okay, what are you playing? They said, we're playing marbles. So he said, throw the marbles in the air. So they took a handful of marbles and threw them up in the air. And the Rebbe looked at him and says, there's 17 marbles or whatever it was. And they fell down. They counted the marbles. And the Rebbe said, okay, are we done playing now? No, <laughs> no the, the Rebbe was an extreme introvert. Um, the last Rebbe? Yes, yes. The difference is. But the, the third Chabad Rebbe, the Tzemach Tzedek, he, he was a very precocious child. So much so, it almost ruined his marriage chances. Which,
1: mm-hmm.
0: I'll tell you that story and then I'll tell you the story that relates to this. Um, the Alt Rebbe wanted to make a Shidduch, a marriage between his two grandchildren. The Tzemach Tzedek was his son was a grandson through his daughter, Tavarleia, who he raised because she passed away. And he wanted him to marry his granddaughter through his son and successor, the Mittler Rebbe, Chay Mushka. So he went to the father of the prospective bride. Wait, could you say that, can you one more time? <laughs> write it out, it's easier. So you have the Altar Rebbe at the top. Yeah, the cousins. Okay. Okay, the Altar Rebbe has a son and a daughter. The son is the Midler Rebbe, And his daughter is Dvoraleah. The Altar Rebbe's daughter was named as now she passed away when the Temachzedek, I think, was two or three years old and had the Altar Rebbe raised him. So her son was the Temachedek. He's the one in the white. We don't have a picture of the and the mitzle had a daughter named Chaimushka. Okay. And the alt Rebbe wanted to make a shidduch between his two grandchildren, okay. that they should get married. Okay. So he went to the father of the prospective bride. The mitzle said, I want to make a shidduch between your nephew and your daughter. And the mitzle said, no. <laughs> And the author said, why? And now, this was when the Tzemach tzaddik was about eight or nine years old and Chaimushka was, I think, nine, ten years old, something like that. So... The Neturba says, well, look outside. and Outside, there were a bunch of kids playing in the yard. One child was tied up with a rope, being dragged along by all the other ones. And the ringleader of this group was the Tzemach And the Neturba says, that's why.
1: <laughs>
0: so the Alter asked the Tzemach to come in. He told him to sit down and learn a page of Talmud with the commentator's and tosos for a half hour, a certain amount. Ten minutes later, he was back playing outside with the other kids. The Alter called him in. He had him tested. He knew all the material, but he said, I told you a half hour, you have to listen for half hour." And eventually he agreed to the shidduch, but he was, uh, you know, he was, he was kind of precocious So one time in the town, in, 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 um, in Lyozhena, where, where they lived There was a certain Jew who, who had a very strong relationship with God okay, You should hear the sarcasm in the voice And um, he went into the shul, one time all by himself And um, he was like, you know, doing his like spiritual, extent, praying to God and whatever. And the Tzemach Tzedek and a friend of his were up in the women's section of the show, And they decided to have a good time with him. So he, um, he's like pouring out his soul and like asking for like divine inspiration or whatever. He's like, he and God are like, you know, best of buddies, whatever. And so they take some water and they pour some of the water from the women's section onto this man's head. And they say in as deep a voice as they can, tahor, tahor, which means pure. And the man goes, oh, it runs out of the show and says, in heaven they decreed I'm pure. They poured holy water on me. <laughs> and the man was completely convinced that he had been like anointed by the holy water from heaven, that he was, you can like, you can really like, like if it's just you and God, you can, you can create any sorts of delusions you want. Um, and while you know, the study and the learning and all that can help, but at the end of the day, like, it don't have that same corrective feedback that you do with a person. And that means that our relationship with God can end up becoming the outlet for our ego, for our animal soul. Okay. That a person um, can become so invested in b- achieving spiritual growth That's really nothing to do with really what we're talking about about realizing the greatness of Hashem, desiring to be close to Him authentically. And really, it's all actually become a outlet, a place where that person can feel central and important and powerful and significant. And God, very rarely, in any sort of overt way, comes and puts the person back in their place. Now, if that's the way a person is approaching it, they might become very careful about regulating their, their thoughts when it comes to matters that are of a, of a spiritual nature, you know, things having to do with, with purity, things having to do with religion. Um, and yet when it comes to other people, right, they can actually be, be quite vindictive and vicious and cruel and, and corrupt because there's really nothing about transcending the animalistic nature of the person at all. That's not what's really happening. Um, this is a, a, a real danger. It doesn't just exist in the times of after exists nowadays as well. Um, in fact, in the, the fifth Chabad Rebbe writes in one of his discourses about the love of fellow Jew, is that the people who suffer most from vindictiveness are people who get very involved in spiritual growth. Those are the people who become very corrupt and vindictive because they start to think highly of themselves. And you know, if someone thinks like they if someone thinks that they're very important because they're wealthy. I mean, it just takes a little bit of reflection to realize that wealth isn't everything. But if you think you're very important because you're very holy, because you're very God-fearing, like that is the ultimate value, right? So you are really, and, you, and that person can start to, that religious growth can actually undermine the, the, the proper relationship with other people um, and can create a lot of conflict. And so the Alter Rebbe added this second paragraph but the Al-Tabit takes what we've learned about a Benini and applies it not to matters of indulgences and physical pleasures, not in terms of, of, of the importance of doing mitzvahs, but specifically focusing on the relations with other people, how this goes hand in hand, that, that if a person truly is a Benini, these two dimensions, relationship with Hashem, relationship with other people, are not separate. Who said
1: that which was it, That spiritual growth comes at the
0: expense of... For some people, the Rebbe Shabbat and Hechalt. Um, so, too, in matters affecting a person's relations with his neighbor, as soon as there rises from his mind, heart to his mind some animosity or hatred, God forbid, or jealousy or anger or a grudge and such like, he gives them no entrance into his mind and will. On the contrary, his mind and will exercise authority and power over his spirit and his heart to do the very opposite and conduct himself towards his neighbor with the quality of kindness and a display of abundant love. So, how does a use now? It doesn't, by the way, give a caveat if the person has hurt you, and we'll see later on he's going to be quite explicit about it. Um, to the point of extent of, of, of suffering from him to the extreme limits without being provoked into anger, God forbid, or revenge in kind, God forbid. So, how does a man deal with the fact that someone cheated them in business? Do they feel angry that the person cheated them in business? Sure, they feel angry, right? They're not a tzaddik. But as soon as they realize that what they're feeling is anger, they treat that as the same way they would treat any sort of indulgence in any ungodly thing. And it has no place to them, and they would not, certainly not act on it. They certainly wouldn't speak on it, right? But they wouldn't even allow themselves to continue thinking about that, right? They would move their mind away from that, and in fact, conduct themselves the exact opposite. So when you say that someone is a bainani, here's a good simple way to check, which is how do they treat the people who hurt them?
1: Because
0: mm-hmm. that measure is actually a lot harder to achieve than not indulging in like you know sensual pleasures and physical indulgences.
1: But then you'd still be able to take recourse. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. It's yeah, yeah, different how you treat
0: the person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In other words, just like like like. like um, there's an old saying that the, you know the difference between criminal law and civil law is in criminal court, you see the worst people at their best,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and in civil court you see the best people at their worst. Right? You have a guy murdered, killed, tortured shows up in criminal court. He's a perfect gentleman, right? You someone who's like. You know, the upstanding member of society is in civil court. Every backhanded... You know, like, I mean, you can go to court, but like, you know, if you want to take recourse, take recourse. But, the, but then also this person is going to think, like, honestly, is it, you know, just because it's within my rights, is it the right thing to do? Right? There is this idea that the Torah, the, the Talmud says that the temp, second temple was destroyed. One of the reasons given is because the Jewish people kept to the strict letter of the law. In other words, if you owe me $100, and I take you to court over that $100. I'm also in my rights to do that. But it is worth bearing in mind why you're not paying me the $100. Right? Well, why Why would that be? Because
1: maybe the person doesn't
0: have the money. Mm. So then you really have to ask yourself, is it really worth dragging the person into the basement? and getting the basin to authorize them to pay it and causing them, you're within your rights. But is that really, like, is it really worth $100? Mm.
1: Nah,
0: these are not easy things to, these are not, right? But that's what, that's what, those, the Bainini's question is, not, that's what the Bainini's question is. I mean, the, the, the idea is not necessarily, like, you never take legal recourse, but certainly you're not, you're coming from a place of, like, on the contrary, you're trying to be kind, trying to be understanding. You're not coming from a place of vengeance and, and, and any of those types of things, and anger and resentment. But it's okay, so then there's like, you know, there's, there's the cost to me, there's a cost to the other person, what's the appropriate thing to do? There were Hasidim who had a custom, to be very frank. I Having now dealt with certain financial issues with other Jews, I can tell you, it's, it's not a simple thing to do, but there were Hasidim who had a custom, and not just Hasidim from hundreds of years ago, Hasidim who are even alive today, of a custom, you don't take another Jew to court, ever. Because if it got to the point that the only resolution is to go to court, whatever you're gaining in money, you're you're losing in getting along with another Jew and creating more conflict and creating more resentment. And okay, now agree. that that is that is that is way far above the letter of the law. Okay. Um, but the Alkib is talking about here, which is kind of the standard of the Bainani, is that there that the person is not going to, is going to treat um, these kinds, the same way, the same way, you know, if a person had a thought of, well, maybe I should become a Catholic, right? That's like, as soon as that thought would occur to a they're like, no, 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 that's like no place in my life, right? right? Well, any thoughts of hatred, resentment, anger, animosity, or grudge, jealousy, to their mind is the same thing. And that's kind of the sign that all of this prayer and all this arousing of love and all of that stuff is being done authentically rather than just being a kind of like indulgence into your own spiritual fantasy. That when one's dedication to the relationship with God is disproportionate from their dedication to another Jew, that means that there's some, the animal soul has kind of hijacked the process somehow.
1: Yeah. like avoid the, like where's the meaning isn't this danger, a danger?
0: be quiet <laughs> okay now what did I just do what did I just do
1: like quiet
0: that's right yeah. okay. did I feel any resentment or anger towards you mm-hmm. no I did that just to make a point right okay now you can ask your question I'll come back to that <laughs>
1: <Okay>. <laughs> so my question is if For anyone that's not a bane in me, couldn't this be a dangerous thing where it leads them to just avoid thinking thoughts that aren't, like, convenient or that are like, difficult? Like, isn't it, like, a complicated, not complicated, but, like, you see a little bit where I'm coming from? Mm -hmm. If, like, every time I think a thought that is somehow uncomfortable to me, I, like, shut it down right away, there's a problem, I think. Potentially.
0: What's the problem?
1: That you're kind of like not dealing with the whole side of reality.
0: Which side of reality?
1: Whichever. I, no, but flesh it out. Flesh it out. Like in, in this case, if I'm like shutting down any thought that makes me uncomfortable, then I'm not dealing with any part of reality that makes me uncomfortable. I'm not saying that's what a bane does, but I'm saying that...
0: Well, I mean, that... Okay. that, that, that the, being uncomfortable is not what the being is shutting down. What are they shutting down? They're shutting down down animosity and hatred and things like that. Okay? But why are they shutting those things down? Because they're not in line with the life that they're trying to live. Okay? A person is like that has a very clear has to have a very clear sense of priority. Right? Has a very has to be very strong in the sense of being Driven and focused on what's important, okay? Such a person can act in ways That need to be That need to happen Without necessarily having emotion for instance As you know, I can say it Very loudly, very quickly just be quiet and get everyone to be quiet, right? That doesn't mean I'm feeling any sort of anger or animosity, right? right. So does that prov- so so th- th- there's n- there's nothing in this description which is of an avoidant nature. What it's doing is the opposite. Is it, is it is it is it is it is it actually giving the person more kind of autonomy. It's saying okay, well what are the what is the values in the life you're really trying to live is as li- a godly life. Okay, well then you have the ability to. Act that way to speak that way to to think that way and yes if you need to be harsh or direct or use legal recourse over someone that's on the table as a matter of, of 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 a judicious decision but that's never going to be coming that's never going to be your attitude you're not going to be predisposed to that you're predisposed to the opposite to be kind to the person and to be generous to the person to be forgiving to the person right um right. You can have just you can do things because you have a sense they need to get done while being completely dispassionate about them like Me interrupting you in the middle of what you were speaking, right? It's not like like now a person could do what I did because they're really upset and don't like what the person is saying, right? so But but if a person is a baini their predisposition is never to be harsh with another person they can decide that that needs to be done and, and usually they're gonna think twice, three times, four times, five times about it before they do so. Okay. Um, you know I, I would say the opposite is the case, that when a person is, only knows how to be harsh when they feel resentment, then they don't know how to actually, this is like an, this thing that happens in parenting. Um, children are crazy. You're a parent, anyone else Your a parent, don't. No. Right. Children are crazy, right? Okay. The smaller they are, the crazier they are. Older they get, there's different issues, but the craziness starts to go away. But they're really crazy. Okay. And um, children need rules. They need discipline. Okay. Um, parents are people. People tend to run off of emotion. So when things are going wonderful with your children, the tendency of the parent is to kind of go with the flow. Right? But because the child is crazy, the flow keeps flowing until at some point right? it crosses a line. At which point now, how does the parent feel? Angry. Angry. So what ends up happening is that the child's experience of parenting is like this. Is that it's all like fun and games and crazy world until I cross this invisible line, which I don't know where it is, and all of a sudden my parent turns into this like you know cruel, angry, vicious person that I like, that's not a very effective way to parent, although that is the most intuitive way that parents experience things. The more effective way to parent would be that you feel like a, a positive generosity towards your children, regardless of how they're behaving, and the actual things that you're doing are always motivated what would be for the best interest of the child, right? Which 90% of the time is to be kind and firm, and 10% of the time is to be firm and harsh, or something like that. Right? But notice how like, the fact that you, the emotions are not governing the person actually enables that. Right? So this is not an avoidance. This is not, a, I'm avoiding discomfort. This is not, I'm going to become a doormat. That's not what this person would look like at all. Right? And remember, this power comes from the impression made of prayer, having that sense of clarity in the mind. Right? It comes from that deep maturity. Now, there's another thing. Which I I think you were addressing, which is that that sometimes people, they don't allow themselves to think things because they feel guilty about them. But have we discussed that anywhere here? No. Now, if you're not allowing yourself to do something because you feel guilty about it, are you focused on the reality of what it is, or are you focused simply on your comfort level? right? That, that's the same mindset that lets the parent kind of go with the flow until the child crosses the invisible line. Because right now my comfort level is like, it's easier just to just go with the flow rather than, rather than discipline the child, right? And now once, you know, it's crossed the line and now I'm upset, the, easy, the more comfortable thing to do is to give into that up to the point I feel guilty about it, right? And, and this is, you, you, it, it, it's chaotic. This is not chaotic. This is somebody who doesn't see anybody as their enemy, even though that person is doing, they see the fact that person is doing something that's wrong, okay, we'll have to, we'll have to deal with that. What's the right way to deal with that? The, 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 this, the, the bias is to be generous and kind, because that, that's generally a good starting point, but then you're practically speaking what the case needs to be. Okay, I want to mention one important caveat, um, which is if someone has seriously harmed a person, God forbid, say the case of like serious abuse... Um, there is a question of healing, and we're not addressing that here, okay? In other words, um, the, way I, the way I think, what I'm going to tell you is, I think, is conceptually a very clear-cut thing, and in practice is not a clear-cut thing. If someone robs, from, robs me, you know, they take my money. Um, I think we would all understand that there, that regardless of like anything else, it, I I shouldn't expose myself to that person's ability to rob me a second time. That that would not be a wise thing to do, right? Right. So, somebody like works in my house and they steal things, right? I probably shouldn't have them work in my house anymore, right? Okay. Um. And. Also, like, I make sense to either one of the two, either work to recover what was stolen or to come to terms with that what was stolen, right? But it's not conducive to me to walk around feeling bitter and resentful, right? Separate from any religious thing about, about a problem that I'm either cannot or unwilling to solve. Make sense?
1: Okay.
0: So now, if someone has harmed a person, not financially, but harmed a person in um, a more emotional kind of way, some sort of psychological um, damage or trauma, whatever word you like to use. The question you have to ask is, is the not feeling negative feelings, is that causing further harm because you're not dealing with the underlying damage? In which case, it's basically the same thing as, like, someone worked in your house, they stole from you, and you keep having work in your house, right? You're exposing yourself to further harm. Um, or is it not really – or, or is this now gone to just the general thing that we have a general negativity to people who have harmed us, right? Those are two very different things. Conceptually, it's an easy distinction to make. In life, is it an easy distinction to make? No. It's not an easy distinction to make in life. So said, of someone who is seriously hurt, traumatized, or abused, there is definitely a need for that person to go through some kind of a process to, I don't know if necessarily healing is the right word, um, but something to put themselves on the best possible footing going forward. And that often means bringing up negative emotions towards another person. That is different than what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is this person hurt me, and therefore I'm upset with
1: okay?
0: them. And you get in real life where we draw that line, it's good to consult with a person who is both wise and God fearing as to how to draw that line. This just shows up, it actually has a lot of consequences because you're not allowed to speak bad about people, you're not allowed to speak bad about parents and teachers. On the other hand, people sometimes need to go through some kind of a therapy, right? So how do you draw those lines? And I'm not, I'm not going into that issue. I just bring that up. That what we're talking about here is not that, okay? Um, and so the and is going to take everything that we've learned, and that also is going to correlate to the way they the, the, they treat their fellow Jew. Um, So how do they treat that person? Rather repay the offender with favors. It is taught in the Zohar that one should learn from the example of Yosef towards his brothers. Yosef's brothers were not very nice to him and he ended up supporting and helping them. Um, One last point on this. There is sometimes people have a sense that someone needs to teach this person a lesson. And I, not, not because I'm anyway upset with that person, or not because I'm offended, but they really need to know. And we should be very, very cautious to thinking about, are we really trying to teach this person a lesson because we care about their moral and spiritual growth? Or is this a way of putting a kosher stamp on our desire for vengeance and vindictiveness? Um, okay. So... We finished. Now we finished chapter twelve. So there's not. It's not really any new ideas other than everything we've said applies to this genre as well, um, and we'll leave it at that. So tomorrow we'll start chapter thirteen.